and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sanderlind and Talking Migration is supported by the University of Manchester. Earlier this year, the Danish Parliament voted in favour of a policy of so-called externalisation of asylum. According to this new law, Denmark should seek to enter bilateral agreements with third countries, who will then process and protect asylum seekers there instead of in Denmark. Other countries have sought similar solutions, but few, with some notable exceptions, have implemented them. The practical as well as legal obstacles to moving asylum outside of a country's territory are high, and there are worries about how the rights of refugees and asylum seekers would be protected. To discuss this new policy, I'm joined by Nicholas Tan, senior researcher at the Danish Institute for Human Rights. Nicholas Tan has written several articles on asylum policy, externalization and Danish asylum policy. I started by asking him to briefly describe the new Danish policy. So the Danish proposal um, entails the policy of when asylum seekers arrive in Denmark, they should be transferred to a third country outside the EU, um, where they will receive their asylum procedure. It's not clear if that procedure should be done by Danish authorities or the third country's authorities. That's really sort of up for discussion. And what gets missed in this debate is once the asylum procedure is done, the policy approach says that all refugees should actually remain in that third country and be integrated there. So it's not the externalization of just the asylum procedure for you know, a temporary amount of time, which you know, one could maybe understand in some situations. It's the idea of, in fact, delegating responsibility for both the asylum procedure and the rest of refugees' lives uh, to this third country. Is there any discussion that something like the UNHCR or a third party would do the asylum procedure? Yeah, so as I mentioned, the asylum procedure question is really up for debate. Um, the Danish government in January of 2021 put out a sort of concept note around the proposal and that concept note put forward two models. Model one was um, essentially a Danish-run asylum centre in the third country with um, Danish uh, lawyers, Danish officers, Danish administrative decision makers. And model two was the third country doing the asylum procedure presumably with some Danish support. Now, of course, we know that UNHCR in some countries does carry out RSD, refugee status determination procedures. But as far as I can tell in the Danish Danish uh, approach, the idea is either Denmark would do it or the third country's authorities would do the asylum procedures. Okay. So if it was the case that it was Denmark who did it, presumably that would be with Danish asylum laws, which may differ from the country where uh, where they're in and if it's also the case that they're meant to be if it's a if it's a positive um, application they're meant to be staying in that country then how would that work in terms of the 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 jurisdiction of it that basically the third country would have to then accept Dan- Denmark's asylum laws I think you raise a really 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 good question that hasn't been adequately answered by the Danish government at this point Um, I think what the Danish proposal envisages is a bilateral treaty between the two countries. So presumably, if it was Danish authorities doing the asylum procedure, then part of the treaty would be a clause stating that the third country will accept the decisions of the Danish authorities 
on the third country's territory. So I agree, highly unusual, but, but legally possible. And then you also raise a good question about this um, potential lack of symmetry in terms of legal standards. So one could easily imagine a situation, for example, where Danish law recognises LGBT asylum seekers as potential refugees. A third country may not do so. And then there would need to be some sort of legal harmonisation around that conflict. What I would imagine, uh, or what the Danish government has said, in fact, is that before transfer to the third country, there will be initial screening in Denmark, not an asylum procedure, but a screening to assess whether it's safe to send this person to the third country. So already the Danish government has said, you know, if the person comes from the third country itself, then they won't be transferred there, which makes sense as a matter of non-governmental. But again, if we have a country that is particularly um, inhospitable to LGBT asylum claims, for example, it may be that all LGBT asylum claimants will end up remaining in Denmark and going through national procedures here. I see. Um, and how does this proposal compare to other countries? So, for example, the UK has recently proposed something similar, I think, and then you have existing arrangements uh, in Australia that might maybe they're a bit similar. Yeah, so on the UK proposal, I'm aware that it's in the Nationalities, Nationality and Borders Bill, but I haven't seen any detail around it, so it's difficult to compare in the abstract. On the Australian side, um, depending on the model Denmark takes forward, it could look quite a lot like um, the Australian approach. Australia has also attempted to both transfer asylum seekers to Papua New Guinea and Nauru, have their asylum processes there and try to provide protection there. That's clearly failed. Um, neither of those states have been able to provide lawful uh, asylum procedures or, in fact, to integrate refugees successfully. Um, um, but, but the Danish proposal would be unique if, in fact, we end up with a situation with, of Danish officials doing um, asylum procedures in a third country. That would be, I think, uh, fairly novel. Um, and, of course, it's quite different to the first iteration of the Australian Pacific Solution, which only involved the procedures side. Uh, it was only focused on, on getting through an asylum process in a third country. Um, so what, what's really important to note and often sometimes lost in the detail here is the idea of Denmark's approach is not only procedures extraterritorially, but also protection in a third country. So, but in the Australian case, I thought it was also protection. Um, Correct. In, the, in a second iteration of the right. solution, yeah, which has run from 2013 to today, that's correct. It's this attempt to try and both provide processing and protection in a third state. But the first iteration between 2001, 2007 was, was just the asylum procedure. And would you say in terms of the Australian model that the first iteration was that any more feasible or successful than the second? Like, would it be possible to say that you could actually have procedure but not protection? I think, yeah, I think from an international legal perspective, it, it is easier to provide a fair and efficient asylum procedure in a third country than third, than third country protection because an asylum procedure is a fairly concrete, temporary 
um, activity, you know, that can be achieved in a matter of months and then people can move on to either refugee protection or, or return. Whereas the idea of providing third country protection in a country like Nauru or Papua New Guinea has been wildly unsuccessful. And that, in a way, that's been the major, or one of the major flaws of the Australian model that Australia was simply unable to find solutions for refugees transferred to those two very poor and undeveloped states. Right, interesting. Um, so I've jumped ahead a little bit, but uh, I was going to ask you what the legal framework is for this kind of externalisation. Um, yeah, you've already touched upon it a bit, but would you like to add anything or expand on it? Of course. So another sort of novel part of the Danish approach is I think it's for the first time we've seen a European country legislate for this form of externalisation. Um, and of course, in Europe, we have an extra layer of human rights law uh, and refugee law, indeed, from the European Convention on Human Rights and the EU Charter. So, but from, the, from an international perspective, the legal framework here um, starts, of course, with the 1951 Refugee Convention. The 1951 Refugee Convention does not include an explicit right to asylum, and um, but does include, of course, a prohibition on more, on sending a person to a third, to either to their own country or to any other country where they'd be in danger. And that gap is where the Danish government is trying to operate here, saying that we will not provide territorial asylum to all asylum seekers but we will also not, uh, we'll remain in compliance with non-performal principle by transferring them to a third country that respects their rights. So that's the sort of legal territory in which we're operating. What I think is also important here is that the Danish policy started out as a European vision, a vision not just for the reform of Denmark's asylum policy, but for Europe's more broadly. And what we've seen uh, over the past couple of years is Danish politicians essentially tried to um, pitch their model to other European leaders and so far without success. So we've seen the EU really turn their back on, on the Danish proposal so far. There's certainly been interest from the UK um, and some interest from Austria as well. But the key difference here, and this is becoming a little legally technical, the key difference is that Denmark has an opt-out of the EU asylum system for the most part. And the EU asylum system states quite clearly that if an asylum seeker arrives on European territory, claims asylum, then that person has the right to remain on European soil while the asylum procedure is in place. So that means, in effect, that what Denmark can do, other European states cannot do because of their involvement in the European asylum system. Because Denmark has opted out. Because yeah, Denmark so has this yeah. opt out, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, yeah, so you're saying there that not that many countries have followed so far, but do you think they've not followed then because they know that they have this restriction based on their um, uh, cooperation with the European asylum system? I mean, it's... It's a highly politicised <laughs> question, obviously, so it's difficult to know where the, the law starts and the politics uh, ends. But um, I think it's clear that uh, because Denmark can do this lawfully. Mm. Uh, Denmark, there's nothing that stands in the way of Denmark uh, legislating for these transfers, at least in the abstract. Um, as far as, in my legal view, all 
other EU states who are part of the EU asylum system cannot do this, lawfully speaking, as the law currently stands. So that has been a pretty clear roadblock for the, for the, the spread of, of the Danish approach um, in, into many other EU countries. I suppose that's why it's the UK <clears throat> who's proposed it then, because they don't have those uh, constraints. Right, interesting. So um, one of the main questions I've heard, uh, not just against the Danish um, proposal, but in general when different parties suggest something like this, is who's actually going to do this? Like who are the third countries who are actually going to be willing to agree on these, um, to, to do this job? And do, does Denmark have any ideas or any countries that would be interested? So Denmark has a task force working on this question currently through diplomatic channels. And initially the government was fairly open in nominating countries like uh, Morocco and Tunisia to do this sort of work as potential partners. The problem with that approach, of course, is that as soon as um, that was made public, the governments and diplomatic core of these countries almost immediately rejected the approach and, and expressed a, a lack of interest in, in cooperation. So currently um, the government is pursuing this as a, matter, as a diplomatic matter in, in confidential talks. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about Rwanda as a potential partner country. So in the same week that the legislation passed enabling transfers from Denmark, um, the Danish uh, immigration and development minister travelled to Kigali and signed an MOU with the Rwandan government. That MOU did, the Memorandum of Understanding did not provide for the transfer of asylum seekers from Denmark to Rwanda. In fact, what it entailed was um, uh, Danish assistance to Rwanda's asylum system and indeed Danish resettlement from Rwanda to Denmark. But nonetheless, of course, the sort of politics of the passage of a bill and the signing of an MOU with Rwanda was seemed to suggest that, that Rwanda was a potential partner. Um, that MOU might be seen as a step along the way towards bilateral cooperation, but we simply don't know yet. Um, media reported here last week that um, the Danish government was also in talks with Ukraine as a potential partner country. Of course, I don't know which or if any states will come on board with the Danish proposal, but I am a little bit sceptical or wary of those who completely discount the possibility. Um, I think we've seen before in both the Australia and US examples that such externalisation policies have been realised and um, it only takes one government uh, to, to agree to, to cooperate with Denmark or even to enter into a sort of pilot program for this policy to be enacted in practice. One thing that I was wondering with these countries that you've mentioned, like I know, you know, it might not be any of those countries in the end, but um, but as you said at the start as well, it might actually be that these countries are not necessarily safe for everyone or that people in fact are fleeing from those countries. Um, so then they wouldn't be sent back there. Um, but what, um, what would be sort of the legal... Um, context or requirement for these countries being deemed then safe third countries like would it be I think you were suggesting that perhaps it would be determined on a case-by-case basis whether the country is safe for the individual asylum seeker or would it be I'm assuming there must be some assessment of whether the country's safe at all um, for anyone 
Yeah. So I think the Danish government has certainly guaranteed to provide an individual assessment of asylum seekers arriving to Denmark, a sort of a, transfer, a pre-transfer screening, as it were. Um, and that, of course, is to comply with Denmark's obligations, both with respect to non-conformal, but also with respect to the prohibition of collective expulsion. The government has not been so forthcoming about what, what entails a safe third country. I think they've made references to a defensible asylum system, for example, to um, potentially being part of the Refugee Convention. Um, but, but that's pretty pretty unclear at this stage what sort of state we're talking about. Um, earlier, the government guaranteed that it would be a democratic state. They've since walked that back, um, potentially, for example, with Rwanda in mind. Um, so there's a lot of really serious or really important, uh, both sort of legal, practical and operational details to be, um, to be spelled out and explained uh, before this ever happens, even when it happens. Mm. And what would you say are the risks to asylum seekers' rights with this kind of system? So I think we've seen from the Australian example that there are many, many grave risks to asylum seekers. Um, of course, some of them extend to questions of status. Um, in Nauru and Papua New Guinea, for example, we saw that those governments simply didn't have operating asylum systems uh, when people were being transferred. And so people ended up in a sort of legal limbo in uh, indefinite detention for up to a couple of years to wait for an asylum decision. Um, so the sort of legal, the legal questions are on really important on the one hand. On the other hand, of course, there are more um, reception questions around what sort of centre will be, they be hosted in uh, the Danish government doesn't refer to any detention in these arrangements, which is a, is a positive thing. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, I'd be really interested to know what material conditions were both in the third country in general, of course, um, but also in the specific reception arrangements for asylum seekers. Um, and then there are all sorts of other maybe more medium and long-term questions about, well, what happens after the asylum procedure to these people, what sort of integration programs exist, um, what about um, particularly vulnerable asylum seekers who may have pregnancies or health conditions that need to be addressed, at what point does Denmark's responsibility end and the third country's responsibility kick in? So many, many questions remain unanswered. And uh, one thing I was wondering as well is um, uh, what about... Um, deportations or um, removals of those who uh, have their application rejected? Yeah, this is a good point. So presumably that of, of a group of asylum seekers transferred to a third country, there will be a certain proportion who do not have a protection need. Um, again, the Danish government has been pretty quiet on this discrete question. Um, but presumably there'll need to be some... Uh, responsibility sharing or um, allocation of responsibility for those who are, in fact, not in need of international protection. So this could be a solution by, you know, another um, pathway in the third state or indeed voluntary or forced repatriations. And are there any benefits that you could see with uh, this kind of system? 
Um, so the Danish government uh, has labelled this system as ultimately humanitarian in the sense that it prevents people smuggling and, and risky journeys. Um, I don't tend to agree with that characterization, and that's because, as I mentioned earlier, it's not it's no longer a sort of European vision, it's just it's just a Danish vision. So I don't see how this particular approach would prevent people crossing the Mediterranean, for example, given other EU countries are available for territorial asylum, it's just that Denmark may not be. Um, I, I'm more broadly maybe, in fact, interested in third country asylum processing arrangements if they can, in fact, prevent uh, deaths at sea, for example. But I think this idea of completely delegating responsibility both for the asylum process and for long-term protection of refugees doesn't have a lot of protective potential to it. Hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add that um, we haven't discussed? Maybe just one final point. We've discussed, Clara, the, the sort of legal reality that most, um, most European countries who are part of the EU asylum rules can't, can't carry out this policy. But that hasn't stopped um, some other countries who are not bound by these rules expressing interest. So we've talked about the UK for a little bit, but also Norway and Switzerland are other potential possibilities. And that's also something the Danish government has pursued to some extent, this idea of a sort of coalition of the willing approach, not to get the whole EU on board, but a, a certain selection of countries who have the legal and the political possibilities to pursue this, um, this approach. And, and that may be a way forward um, we'll just have to wait and see. To find out more about Nicolas Tan's work, see the show notes or links on Twitter at TalkingMig. You may be particularly interested in a blog post that he recently wrote about this new Danish policy. You'll find the links to that either in the show notes or on Twitter. That was all for this time. Thank you so much for listening.